Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual arts. Nava in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts. fantastic to be here with Connie Anthes and Ricky Gallo from Make or Break. This is a podcast that I have been quite looking forward to because having uh, experienced your work most recently down at OK Democracy, we need to talk. And then, of course, a lot has changed in Australia since then, but then it kind of hasn't. We haven't had a change of government, but we seem to have had a change in a lot of the public conversation that is happening around the kind of ethics and identity and culture that underlie government and so much of OK Democracy We Need to Talk and your work was about that in general, as well as that broader critique of that public discussion. So it's fantastic to be here with Connie and with Rebecca. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Now, so that we paint a picture for everyone who's listening, tell me about your practice in general and about Make or Break, because, I don't know, that name for a practice is so kind of compelling. It kind of asks us to think about resilience in a particular way, but it's also quite urgent. Tell me how this came about. Well, it's interesting that you say urgent because the whole reason Rebecca and I first started working together was basically in the wake of the uh, Brandis cuts. Oh, there you go. And literally sitting over a coffee, talking about a show at a space that Rebecca used to be involved with, Archive in Newtown, which was about to close, as Ari's do in Sydney, but basically saying we've got to critique this in some way, what's happening, and reflect, you know, some of the problematics of the way that the arts world is structured and who it rewards and who it doesn't reward. And so we devised a project which was only ever supposed to be, you know, a one-off situation, which was a project called Make or Break Studio, where we basically turned the exhibition space at First Draft Gallery in Sydney into a working artist studio with all the tools, a little reading library, a desk and a chair, but we had no materials to work with. And so we relied on the audiences that came to visit the show to actually provide those materials. And then Rebecca and I worked in Relay day in, day out over the course of the exhibition sort of making and unmaking each other's work. So there were there were lots of issues and sort of ideas that came about through that show. So the idea of, you know, the individual artist as genius because Rebecca and I could actually, like, dismantle each other's work or build on top of each other's work. The idea of how art value is accumulated in the art market. What happens when the audience provides the materials? Do they value the works that are made from those materials less or more? and what sort of investment are audiences making in the sort of creation and devising of the work um, when that happens. And it, it was also about uh, using gallery space a bit strategically. Um, another 
issue that we were responding to was the uh, lack of affordable studio space in Sydney, which is an ongoing and worsening issue. Both of us had been essentially gentrified out of our studios at that point. And um, we were thinking about the fact that in an, in an exhibition, you sort of have these, these works uh, you know, up in the space, which remains mostly empty apart from, you know, uh, I guess, a slow um, continuum of, of audiences that, that sort of come through. But, you know, at an artist-run space during the week, that's, the numbers can be fairly low. So essentially that space is sitting fairly dormant for that exhibition period. And we thought, you know, that's, that's prime real estate. We don't have space, studio space at the moment to make work. Let's make use of the gallery space in a strategic way. And I guess it, it also ended up serving as quite an important conceptual element of the work as well, the idea of making the process transparent and making the process the artwork. There are so many um, tensions in what you both just said and, you know, make or break obviously is a, it, it is a key one, but that, that those distinctions between, you know, what is productive or unproductive mm. space, uh, what is the, the kind of space that, you know, returns an income for somebody else or, or that doesn't, mm. uh, that sense of the art world and, and what its foundational structures are, that sense of, you know, the sort of abstracted genius of the artist or, mm. or exposing the workings. I imagine that a lot of this was, when you say that you first began working together, sitting down after the Brandis raid, this was a time for Australia of just, we'd, we'd come to a place with the, the various independent sectors of feeling like artists were leading certain kinds of conversations, that an independent scene was driving new ideas, that there was perhaps also an interconnectedness and kind of these lines or trajectories, um, you know, across different aspects of the art scene. And it was quite a shock that just one political gesture of shifting money mm. had such a huge impact on us um, and even on um, areas that you'd think it wouldn't have had much to do with. But on, you know, thinking back on that and listening to the way you've both just described um, how you approached that time in your work, that, that quite, you know, violent, destructive, you know, kind of act really did bring out all of those tensions around, you know, the, the role of the artist and, and you know, what is space that, that can be accessed or, or, or not. What did it shift for you in terms of, I guess, how you felt that your work as artist was valued? So just going back to, to what you were saying about, you know, when an audience member uh, brings materials with them to contribute to the work, do they value it more or less? Mm. How do you think that that political change affected the way that art and the work of the artist is valued? I think just in terms, obviously, we can probably only speak from our own personal experiences and perspectives, but certainly it was a time where people who certainly I have associations with were sort of galvanised into action. So it was sort of a moment that really drew a line in the sand and, and sort of felt as though there was now sort of an open antipathy or hostility between the way government works and the way arts funding works. And Do you mean like exposing something in a new way or exposing something that perhaps was, was underlying and, and that, would, that meant that we could then call it out and react? Yeah, I think it was sort of, it was almost, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back in a way. It was sort of like you respond and you adjust and you adapt every time there is 
a change of government or funding strategy or organisational structuring. It was a moment when the art world certainly realised that perhaps this was going to be a long-term new scenario to find a way to work in. And I think for Rebecca and I, it was also a time when we thought, because we'd spoken you know, quite a bit about this idea of the mystifying process of making art. And I think that actually the Brandis Cuts meant that it was very clear that that mystification didn't actually serve us as artists or organisations. And so part of what we started to try and do with our practice as Make or Break, and which we've continued to sort of unpack over the years we've been working together, is this exposure of structures and systems and methodologies that are actually having real-world impact on not just the lives of artists, but the lives of you know, people that work in that ecology of the arts, but also more broadly in terms of social context and, you know, support for people who have different means and abilities to work. And I think, you know, that first project was really a way of us reaffirming to ourselves that art is in fact work, you know. And so that continual process and, you know, we wear these matching sort of boiler suits, I guess, as a shorthand for labour, um, which people often don't think of artwork as work. And so it was our way of sort of affirming that and making visible those labour processes that happen. Let's talk about exactly that. Like what happens when you make visible processes that people don't realise are, are at play? Like what happens when you expose to someone as an artist, two artists presenting work in a space? What, what happens when, when, you know, politically as well as, you know, I guess uh, creatively, sociologically, you know, what, 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 is, what is contributed when the artist exposes those structures? I think for us... You know, Connie and I both maintain independent sort of object-based artistic practices and I think working together as Make or Break allows us to kind of interrogate and critique what it means to be working as an artist in that way. So it's almost like stepping outside of our individual practices, coming together to really like question our own ethics, our own values, our own kind of uh, ways of meaning making and the, the sort of industry and structures we work within. As much as making things more transparent for audiences, it was making, trying to make things transparent for ourselves. I think the sense we got with Make or Break Studio was that this is stuff that a lot of artists were thinking about um, and that non-art audiences were sort of curious about and, and sort of it, it started a lot of conversations that wouldn't, you know, have happened in a sort of normal exhibition context. And I mean, a big part of that is just the presence of an artist in the space, you know, a body labouring in the space is quite a different scenario to, you know, coming in and seeing products of labour. And so you sort of move away from the idea of art as, as a product and more towards sort of art as labour. And I think that through doing that, I suppose we, it's enabled us to have those conversations. It certainly seemed like both artists and non-artists were sort of quite open to and curious about and interested in sort of thinking in that way, particularly at that time. Yeah, that idea of even having those conversations or making people who don't necessarily have the sort of art vocabulary that a lot of contemporary art expects of its audiences. Like, I think it made people feel comfortable to ask questions 
And I think that idea of like conversations as a way of opening up or conversations as a form of sort of social research is something that has really developed in our practice over the five years that we've been working together. And now a lot of our projects and site-specific works revolve around this idea of starting conversations about either difficult topics or topics that aren't necessarily talked about easily or that people haven't thought to talk about in a public way before. And so that's really interesting for us. It's sort of, it's almost like part of our practices now, sort of the art of the conversation. <laughs> well, it's just so vital, isn't it? I mean, when, we, when we're not aware of, you know, that the various different structures that are perhaps, you know, guiding or, or not guiding the way that we can move or think in a public space, and you know, when we're not aware of those things and we don't know the questions to ask, then we do just stay in those same contexts. We ask the same kinds of questions or don't ask the same kinds of questions. You know, I often think of art, you know, in general, more broadly as something that provokes us to ask questions in, in, in new ways, that, that, that a work um, prompts something in us, whether it's an object abstracted and presented in this seemingly neutral way, or whether it's something that is, you know, exquisitely discursive, because there's so much at stake if, if we're not being prompted to ask those questions, isn't there? I mean, tell me about the project and the workshops that, that you've presented as part of OK Democracy, We Need to Talk, because here's something that is, you know, very much, yeah, drawing on so much of what you've just talked about and addressing something which we have long taken to be transparent in our culture, which is the news, the sort of, you know, the daily news and, mm. like, you know, being told what's, what, what's just happened. Tell me about the work and, and what some of the workshops have been like as well. Influence operation is essentially, I guess, a speculative imagining of how democracy might work in the future with citizens being re-engaged and active in the process of, I guess, producing dialogues and having an active interest in what's being spoken about um, in the 24-hour news cycle. Mm. Which... So influence operation, like the opposite of like a covert operation. Well, I mean, an influence operation actually is does refer to a covert kind of operation. Mm. Um, for example, what took place um, with Russian influence in US elections mm. in 2016, that's the sort of thing that the term influence operation comes from that kind of thing where um, social media is used to by sort of corporations and or governments to influence conversations in usually in covert ways. So there was a lot in the media in this election cycle about the influence of social media on political campaigns. Oh, yeah. And yeah, big so, discussion this time around. Absolutely. And we wanted to, for one, I guess, reclaim the role of, of citizen in a democracy to sort of understand what that might mean in this current media climate and to sort of teach ourselves the skills in order to analyse what's going on in a bit more clearly and then to maybe, you know, use some of the tools that are being used to influence conversations to kind of insert our own voices or voices of the citizenry into those political conversations. So looking at things like click farms, Twitter bots, uh, political memes, kind of working with experts in, in different fields to learn how those things operate and then had these sessions where we've had an open call to, to citizens to join us in these working sessions where we learn about what these tools are, how they operate, and then test them out for ourselves. The idea being, I guess, that citizens can be more empowered to, for one, I guess, analyse what's happening in the media, to be more critical, but also to 
have avenues for their own sort of voices and agendas to be heard. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, so much comes to us as though not structured, as though, you know, everyone can access, you know, social media, everyone can, you know, like where there's this kind of false flatness, isn't there, of, of, of access to these things. Yeah, well, certainly the role that uh, money plays in the use of these technologies is incredibly opaque right now. I think people are only starting to sort of get an inkling of the real, real-time effects of how money and influence can actually shape not only sort of public discourse, but also, you know, very important things like election outcomes. And so for us, it's been, as Beck said, you know, a learning curve of us being able to understand how those machinations affect lives and livelihoods, and also to start to understand how we might redeploy those skills because you know a lot of these things are you know like twitter bots like meme culture these are things that people without necessarily any particular tech background can actually pick up and use as tools themselves so it's almost it's interesting because some of these tools which are being used against the democratic process are actually highly democratic in the way that they work you know they're highly accessible they require you know little to no sort of technical skills or you know professional training to use and so these are actually potentially the tools that we might need to use in the future to sort of combat what's going on behind the scenes. Oh, for sure. And not even in the future. I mean, the I think one of the really chilling things about how social media has changed in the years that, that we've known it, you know, uh, and at least some of the kind of popular stories of American guys creating something just for fun and then it kind of explodes, whether it was Facebook or Twitter, people kind of join in, demand um, certain kinds of functionality so that they can, you know, connect and, 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 and be more social and so on. But then we've got this situation today where the seemingly open structures there hijackable by, you know, your quite sort of traditional political power structures. You can have a the government or agents of, of one country influencing another country's election outcome. But even more so when you look at the way that Donald Trump, for example, uses Twitter or the ways in which a, a large set of public conversations can happen while at the same time just reinforcing those, those existing structures. You know, we've sort of gone from this sort of like open Chomskyan kind of linguistic experimentation, the, the new distributions only reinforce the, the, the existing structures. Mm. Yeah, and I guess what we're hoping to do as this project unfolds in future iterations is to actually, I guess, weave our way through those machinations to find places where with minimal budget, but I guess a bit of smarts and a bit of tactics where you actually can kind of break through the noise. And I mean, I don't know, we don't know if that's possible, but we do know that, you know, one of the things we were thinking about when we initiated this project was, you know, where does the mainstream media get its news stories from now? And a lot of that is from, you know, their sources are Facebook posts, their um, tweets, their, you know, Reddit threads. And so, you know, if if that's where mainstream media is, source, is sort of like getting their stories from, how do we put the things there, get the things in the right places in order for them to be picked up and to become news stories? How do we kind of get the things on the agenda that, that need to be on the agenda. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you say about knowing those tactics and, and, and kind of, you know, that, that active citizenship that we've all got to be a part of, it's about knowing tactically what, what can be done. You know, even if people are attending workshops of, of yours or engaging in, in other ways and, and what they're getting is critical literacy, let alone that activist kind of tactical, like that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. And it's also, you know, I think it's also to combat the sort of the apathy or the powerlessness that a lot of people feel when, you know, we wake up after a federal election and we've got the same old white men <laughs> sitting there in power when we all collectively thought, you know, in our particular echo chamber that things were going to change and that couldn't possibly happen. And, I mean, you know, it's happened federally, it's happened in the state, and so there's almost this feeling of, well, nothing surprises anymore or, you know, a a feeling of resignation to not having a voice. And I think this is our attempt to redress that or to reverse that. And this time was a pretty huge echo chamber because it wasn't just what was happening on social media. It was like a range of different polls and so on. And so that kind of dawning kind of, you know, realisation that a lot of the technologies of those um, structures of analysis are largely based on similar and and interconnected systems, Mm. that it's something that, um, again, talking about that false equivalence of this sort of flatness, this sort of level playing field of of social media and, and, and the access to it, as, as against people who have no interest in accessing it and therefore either aren't part of certain conversations or are having entirely other kinds of, of, of political conversations. And I wonder, you know, that often just interests me. Well, I mean, I guess it's, the, it's one of the big political questions of our times, like how do we reach beyond what we have? Mm. How do we wade in, yeah. <laughs> essentially? Yeah. You know, is it about learning different kinds of, you know, language? Is it, is it about being in different places? Like, what's really going to kind of push out? And on the one hand, that is very much about, you know, um, empowerment of citizens, making sure that we have governments whose ethics are really looking after the present and the future. And we think about the climate emergency and we think about the kinds of lies about the economy and its structures and its future and so on. But then just being in a situation, as you are both saying earlier, where you're able to have it exposed to you that work has been involved to get us to where we are, that, you know, there is labour involved, just that conversation should be enough to get people thinking about their own work and their own labour, shouldn't it? It's interesting you say that. Um, I mean, yes, that, I mean, two things. One is that Definitely, when we've been thinking about artistic labour, we were, we were also thinking about immaterial labour, we're thinking about effective labour, reproductive labour, all of those yeah. kinds of, I guess, overlooked forms of, of usually unwaged labour. And I guess as our work has progressed together, we've been, I guess, expanding out from looking at just an art context to sort of looking more broadly at labour. We've just started a new ongoing performance series called Labour Talks. We had the first iteration of it um, at Town Hall Gallery in Hawthorne, Melbourne, last week, in an exhibition called For Love or Money, curated by Sophia Kai, which is all about art and labour. And we sort of wanted to involve audiences in that conversation. So rather than, you know, alongside all of these artists responding to the idea of art and labour, we wanted to give audiences a chance to really 
reflect on their own relationship with labour. And so we sort of had these, um, you know, five-minute uh, well, two-on-one <laughs> conversations with audience members at the, the exhibition launch where we sort of asked questions about their own sort of labour situation, whether they felt that their uh, labour was, was adequately valued. And I think that having those conversations is an important way to sort of, I suppose, get people thinking critically about these things. I think it's also to build empathy. I mean, this is how I think our own thoughts about labour and value are sort of evolving, is that the only way that you can sort of change someone's mind or open someone's mind to new ways of thinking is to actually have an empathic conversation. And sometimes you can only do that face-to-face. And I think a lot of the projects that we work on as Make or Break are essentially trying to have those conversations. So it might be about how female identifying people are represented in civic spaces. It might be about how labour is valued. It might be about, you know, expressing to someone that, you know, we treat art as our job and it is a form of labour which should be valued as other Mm. professions are valued. And I think those conversations are only sort of teased out through these sorts of intimacies, sitting down with like within a group of, you know, five to ten people, you actually can build intimacy quite quickly. And I think it's one thing to sort of call someone out, you know, online or through news media, and it's another thing to sort of be, I guess, abrasive or militantly holding a position when you're across you know, a table from someone. Yeah, and I think that's the that's probably where a lot of people thought or hoped that social media was going to go, that it would remain this kind of intimacy because, like you're saying, Rebecca, about, and, and, and Connie, about that, that, that intimacy but also the sense of uh, an empathy in understanding what your labour means and how it's valued at that kind of bigger macro sense. We're in a situation in Australia and elsewhere in the world where words like union and worker solidarity, just, you know, work in general, labour, this notion that you would come together with people uh, with whom you've got stuff in common but you also want to protect and assert your rights, this has become, you know, the kind of meaning of those words has just become so inverted. Yeah, I mean, we need to find ways to build solidarities that used to be there across class, uh, socioeconomic, professional, political, ethical, we need to find solidarities. And I think it's almost as though, you know, social media has effectively concentrated people's voices in particular groups so that it becomes very hard to to not be in that sort of a binary, highly polarised conversation. And I think to sort of, I guess, go back to the... 2015 Brandis cuts again I think like one of the things that that really made me aware of is a that you know as an artist you sort of can't not be political and b that things that are affecting our sector are also affecting other sectors or they're they're sort of you know if there are cuts to the arts there are cuts to welfare as well there are cuts to unions there are cuts to all sort of other sectors which um and, and I think that there's strength in solidarity you know there's no a limit to what we can 
sort of achieve on our own. That's right. When when artists are speaking out about things, it is, you know, masking uh, and hopefully uh, ultimately exposing a whole range of things uh, that are also under threat. When I look at the changes to the New South Wales funding and policy compared to the Brandis stuff. New South Wales is a state that, um, I mean, you know, it really, really shocks me, you know, um, politically what people get away with here in terms of, you know, the, the privileging of, of certain interests um, above others, you know, really kind of uh, flagrant disregard for the public and communities in general and, you know, what's what's needed for a cohesive society, cities and regions that, 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 that work. You know, when, when Brandis took the hundred something million dollars away from the Australia Council a year after another hundred million was, was cut, that took money away to set up um, a fund which, of course, has since been ended, but left the Australia Council to have to rework its, its strategic plan, whereas what is happening in New South Wales is that the Minister is actually making significant changes to create New South Wales. It's not just that funding is changing, but that the structure of what you know, of what is possible, what the policy tells us, so that, you know, there, there is no new policy, uh, despite all the fanfare around, you know, that um, Arts 2025 process. And instead, we're going to have this new structure um, just announced, where, as far as I've been able to investigate so far, this would make uh, New South Wales the only government in the world that offers arts funding to have ended offering a funding program that puts artists first, that, that is specifically for artistic projects by artists or organisations. I mean, it's absolutely unprecedented to say that artists have to compete with infrastructure requests, and it's certainly unprecedented to not have any funding programs that are for artistic projects. What was your reaction to this? For me, What's happening or what's been announced in terms of um, the way Create New South Wales will be restructured and re-engineered is simply sort of a micro version of what's happening on a macro level in New South Wales in general, which, I mean, it sounds inflammatory and sort of hyperbolic, but I think it's generally a dissolution of the social contract that we have, which is that, you know, every citizen should have access and the ability to work and be supported in their work and to support their communities in the ways that they have skills to do. And I think when it comes to what's been proposed, I mean, we're seeing a negation of the peer review system, which in every other profession and discipline is sort of lauded as best practice which is that people who know about that particular sector or that particular work type should be deciding what is rewarded and what's supported. So that's being replaced with a sort of ministerial jobs for mates, as far as I can tell. You've got individual artists being asked to compete on a level with organisations who have paid staff and wage staff to actually produce funding applications. So there's like a vast inequity there, I think, in terms of what's to be expected of those applications. And I think what we'll probably see is essentially a passing over of 
how that wealth is distributed to the organisations. So I think we'll see organisations essentially deciding which artists get supported as opposed to artists supplying directly to a funding body. And that has implications certainly for artists such as Beck and I as Make or Break because we do like to make work outside of institutional contexts as well. And so what does it mean? How does an artist make work outside of an institution when those institutions are given equal weight from a funding point of view as an individual attempting, you know, to compete on that level? And also, you know, there's just this idea of consultation as well. Like I'm pretty well situated in the art world and I don't know anyone who has consulted about these changes um, before they were announced. So again, that mirrors what we see happening on a, in a broader sense in New South Wales with the way that planning works, for example, with developers, with the way that, um, you know, social support and community support works. You know, these faux consultations are essentially an excuse for making sweeping changes um, to structures and systems that obviously have flaws and can be critiqued. But I think when the changes are constantly being made, you know, you're just trying to reorient yourself continually and that puts you in a position where you can't really fight back. <laughs> and that aspect of it seems quite deliberate, doesn't it? I mean, what's, what's at stake? And all, all the things that um, Connie's just described, what's at stake for artists and for artistic practice, Beck? Well, I think, as Connie indicated, there's um, independence is at stake, the idea that um, artists can maintain independent practices, practices where they instigate sort of projects that may or may not operate within an institutional context. I think also a sense of fairness. I mean, for me, the idea that we, we all put hours of labour into these grant applications, knowing that it's competitive, knowing that there is a good chance we won't be successful because there are other artists who have projects that have been, you know, recommended ahead of ours. And, and I think we can all accept that that's part of the current landscape. Um, it's quite another thing to sort of feel like you've put in a whole lot of unwaged labour into an application and a major sort of state institution, as Connie said, wage staff to work on those grant applications is competing for the same fund. I think what's at stake is um, <laughs> a sense of, of fairness and of, I guess, any kind of equity around those processes. Yeah, I think it was interesting. I was having a read through the sort of media announcements um, put out by sort of Don Harwin and, and uh, Create New South Wales, and there seemed to be a sense that they felt that having this new non-peer review system was going to be more transparent than a peer review system, and I find that quite confusing. <laughs> so I guess I think that the arts community is resilient and adaptive but I also think that it's important to fight for our work to be recognised and supported because I think that artists do do important work in communities and, you know, beyond economic returns, which it's, it's um, difficult to see, I guess, access to funds to artist projects being, being eroded again. 
Yeah, look, there's, there is so much about this that has uh, deeply concerned me, as you know, and given the lack of, you know, public accountability and transparency about this, uh, I, was, I was very concerned the way that those announcements were made. And I've had a few conversations with, um, with, with journalists about actually needing to take, uh, you know, n not imagine that there is a politically neutral position, that you must take some responsibility when you're presenting something in the language that has been given to you, because to say that this is a win for artists and a win for the sector is obviously a, a huge concern and you're quite irresponsible to have presented it in, in that way. We've also had a meeting with Create New South Wales who have assured us that uh, in the first instance this is being rolled out as a pilot and they've, they've said they will be using that word pilot when they do their roadshows of funding application workshops in the cities and regionally and that they welcome lots and lots of feedback and criticism and would be interested in making changes after the first year and so you know, part of, um, in, in having that conversation with them, I had to say, look, what's, you know, been unprecedented for me in this regard is that it's, the, it's certainly the first time in my career that I've been hearing from artists and organisations who say that they're too scared to speak publicly about this because we're in a state here in New South Wales where you don't have to be worried that there might be political repercussions to expressing something. The minister has demonstrated mm. uh, that he overrides uh, and he makes certain you know, decisions that privilege particular electorates, as we saw before the New South Wales election, or you know, particular organisations. And so that's why you know, it was so important uh, that we published the list of questions that artists were asking us, and then also, of course, the piece in The Guardian, which has now been followed up by, by more journalism. Because it's you know, exactly, as you say, Beck, the work that artists do is incredibly valuable beyond you know, the arts you know, the arts kind of community or sphere or scene. But also, these are the various things, all the, all the practices and techniques that you've talked about. This is how we make public space or not. You know, like there's, there's, there's so much at stake in, in what we've been talking about. Let's talk about, just to wrap up, make or break as a name. You were saying that it came together, it came uh, in response to kind of um, the brand of stuff, but it was a particular, that particular um, work that you presented, which was kind of, you know, making and remaking or making and breaking uh, one another's work. But it's also, it's something that's kind of... Um, it's a it, 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 it's it's a small manifesto. It's about <laughs> resilience. Um, it's very much about labour. But tell me, when when you're talking about a situation, something that you're working through together, that 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 is make or break for you, what springs to mind? What 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 are the most make or break issues or worries or passions for you right now? I feel like one of the big things about this practice and, and working as a collective um, has sort of offered me is an opportunity to think critically about what we do as artists and why and to actually ask big questions and to manifest those in projects that are a lot braver and a lot more ambitious than what I'd be able to do on my own. So I think that there's a lot of power in collectivity and in sort of working together as, as a duo but also with other communities and other artists to, I guess, interrogate what it is we're doing and why and to try and find ways to actually improve things, to improve the conditions that, that 
that sort of artists are, are working in, and but also to, I guess, uh, take that more broadly and think about what are issues that we as artists can can sort of help people to think about and talk about in new ways. And I think every project that we've made to date is essentially open-ended. We don't really know what that project's going to become until we actually do it. And so, in essence, every project we put forward is a make-or-break moment, you know. (laughs) We often put our reputations, egos, finances on the line for projects that we believe in not knowing exactly how it's going to turn out, but interested in asking those those particular questions and opening those conversations up. So I suppose for us, make or break is almost like an action. Yeah, and I mean, neither of us has decided to be an artist because we want um, success in a traditional sense of the word or we want to make heaps of money or whatever it is. And so, you know, um, I think make or break is about coming back constantly and remembering why it is we're doing what we're doing. And thankfully, we've had curators and festivals and occasionally institutions who uh, trusted us to sort of roll with that and see what happens. Connie Anthes and Rebecca Gallo, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks, Esther. Thank you. Head to our website, visualarts.net.au, for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations.